to read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. I do hope you have a Bible with you on this Lord's Day morning. It's always good to have one open and in front of you as we study and examine God's Word together. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the chairback Bibles. You'll find today's text on page 911. We're going to take it all the way through verse 4 of of chapter 4 to see something of the response to Peter's sermon in chapter 3. So let me get us going by beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 and reading through verse 4 of chapter 4. Then I'll pray and we'll begin together. So hear now as God speaks to you through his word. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith is through Jesus, has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him whenever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You're the sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks to us, that your word is not bound, that it cannot be chained, that it cannot be stopped, and we pray that you would send it forth even in our midst this day, that it would accomplish the purpose for which you send it. And we pray that purpose would no doubt be the salvation of our souls, the forgiveness of our sins, the hope that's found in Christ alone in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Last night when Emily and I were talking after the kids went to bed and she was in the kitchen and I was seated on the couch, I mentioned something to her. Hey, have you heard about such and such in the current events of our country? And I suppose many of you may have had such and such an event this week where you talked to a family member or a co-worker. Hey, have you heard about so on and so forth? And one of the consequences of living in a news-saturated world like our own is that there's too much news to keep up with. So for many of us, perhaps many of us in the room today, uh, we, we tend to get all of our news through just reading headlines. And so when we say, have you heard about such and such, it's really a story that we've just seen a headline about. And if you know anything about how headlines work, that's not always true, is it? That the headline reveals the truth of the story, that sometimes you can see a headline and miss the actual point of the entire article that the headline is heading. And I tell you that today because we come to one of the most famous miracles you're going to find in this book of Acts. Surely if you had been there in Jerusalem at the time, the evening edition of the Jerusalem Standard may have shouted across on its front page something like, the lame man at Gate Beautiful finally walks. But if you didn't read the story you might have missed that the wonder was actually nothing more than a platform for a word. That the display of of power was nothing other than a stage on which Christ would be preached yet again. For to miss all of that is to miss the point of the passage before us today in Acts chapter 3. Now what we've seen in recent weeks, if you've been with us, is that the early church is existing really at this point in the narrative as we come to chapter 3, verse 1. The early church is existing in something like an idyllic state. Uh, they're, they're sailing through these still, calm waters in their life together. We've seen in recent weeks how the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the early church in fulfillment of this long-expected and predicted reality that the Messiah would ascend to the Father's right hand and that the risen, exalted Christ has now poured out His Spirit upon His people. It was in Acts chapter 2. We noticed on Easter Sunday a few weeks back, Peter preached this first sermon uh, of the New Covenant. People were hearing the language or hearing the truth in their different languages. And Peter comes and says, we're not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. And the Spirit cut the people to the heart. And thousands, just in that day alone of Pentecost, thousands were added to the church. 
Uh, we saw last week as Associate Pastor Trigstead preached from the end of Acts chapter 2. Uh, what were they doing after this great preaching of the gospel? Well, uh, the congregational life of the early Christians was little more than devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, fellowship, the apostles' teaching, to, to prayers, gathering together in the temple. Day by day they were receiving the food with glad and generous hearts and and now we come to see what happens in the next major part of the early church's life. And what is going to happen now is a rocking of the boat in their congregational life. Maybe well, what's better said is no longer is the early church from this point forward truly in this book going to be sailing through still waters. Because by the end of our passage today, they are going to begin to chart their way through storms of persecution. A choppy waters of opposition. But the majority of our text is all about yet another sermon that comes from the rock named Peter. And it's a sermon that situates our attention on a simple theme. One you could just summarize with three words. Jesus gives life. That's what you want to see from this passage today. Jesus gives life. It's something even Peter mentions, doesn't he, if you glance down at verse 15 of chapter 3. One of the titles that he ascribes to our Savior is that he is the author of life. And so what we'll see in the first 10 verses of chapter 3, what we're going to see is life restored to this lame man at the beautiful gate. And then in the sermon itself, we'll see life revealed. And at the end, the first four verses of chapter 4, we're going to see uh, what it means to respond to the preaching of Jesus Christ, noticing that some reject the truth and others receive the truth. So life restored begins in the first 10 verses. Now, if you just glance back to verse 43 of chapter 2, Luke's given, given us almost a throwaway comment that in this kind of stage of the early church's life, what we were told in verse 43 is that awe had come upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And what he does now is going to, with laser focus, zoom in his historical investigative study of the early church and give us just one detailed account of one wonder and sign that was performed. We're told in verse 1 of chapter 3 that it happened at about 3 p.m. in the afternoon as Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer. I wonder if any of you have hours of prayer in your ordinary day or week, dedicated, punctuated times, or you know it's time to pray. Don't you wonder if maybe our own lives and, and homes and, and even churches might know something more of the Spirit's power and ministry in our life if there would be but more hours of prayer each day and week. So they're walking up east side of the temple near this gate called Beautiful. And we're told there in the next few phrases that every single day what would happen is this lame man who is lame from birth would be set down by the beautiful gate and he would ask for alms. So kids, he'd be asking for support, for, for money, which is why Peter is going to soon talk about silver or gold. And some of you have been at intersections where you have come across such a person, haven't you, who's asking for alms. Now we're kind of in the season of the spring that I re refer to in our household as the silly season where soccers are spent with six kids playing Soccer games all over the Metroplex, and my oldest son tends to play most of his games down at a college in Dallas, and one of the ordinary routes from our home down there takes us by an intersection where without fail, for 
Now, actually, in my life, 30 plus years of going by this intersection, there's always seemingly a homeless person there asking for alms. And when you've come across such a person or you've come to such an intersection, I wonder what you tend to say, if anything. What you tend to do, if anything. What are the apostles going to say? And you have to imagine, even in that moment, there at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, this incredible contrast that would have been there at the gate called Beautiful. Because this is one of these majestic sites in that temple of old. It's a gate that's some 75 feet high. It was Corinthian brass, this strong symbol of fortitude and might. Two huge doors opening and swinging. It was this majestic splendor-like sight. And there at the very foot as this man who's broken physically, this man who's broken financially, asking for something. And look at what Peter says in verse 4 into verse 5. He directed his gaze at the lame man, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, this lame man expecting to receive something from them. Now, kids, I'm sure some of you have had a recent birthday that has gone by, or perhaps you have a birthday coming up, and you've, you've written down, haven't you, uh, the requests for, for birthday presents. And so when your birthday comes, you begin to kind of tear open the tissue paper, open the wrapping paper, and you're hoping to, to grab something that you expected to get. But maybe as you took off the tissue paper, you pulled off the wrapping paper, you realize what's in that box or what's in that bag is not something that you asked for but something much better than you even asked for. And that's what's happening here, isn't it, with this lame man? Because notice what Peter says in verse 6, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Surely by this point in his life, it's hard to make it out with great clarity, but for thousands and thousands of days, if not Tens and tens of thousands of days. This lame man had been at the beautiful gate and hadn't ever received anything so beautiful as just the simple announcement, look at me, grab my hand. What I have, I give to you. And what I have is not what you're asking for. But what I have is what you so desperately need. Get up and walk. And some of you parents, I'm sure, can remember those times when your child begins to walk for the first time. You know, isn't it true that uh, there's that kind of sense of imbalance where they're just wobbling about, but that when each passing step, there's this grin that breaks out over their face with this sense of, can you believe what I am doing right now? How much more must it have been when his ankles got strong? This man, the next chapter will say, for 40 years he's been lame. He gets up, but he doesn't just walk, does he? He begins to leap. He begins to jump. You'll see famously what we're told in verse 9. All the people saw him walking, leaping, and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. Life was restored to this man through the simple word of one apostle. I came across a story this week of an old monk who had walked into a room where Pope Innocent II was sitting counting this large amount of money. 
And as the monk came in, uh, Pope Innocent glanced over at him by the doorway and said with a smile on his face, no longer does the church have to say, silver and gold, have I none. But the monk says, yes, but no longer does this church ever say, rise up and walk. And don't you want to be in a place that knows the true power of Jesus Christ, the power that's contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power that comes from the spirit of Jesus Christ that can actually Speak words of such power, rise up and walk, and someone begins to walk who has never done it before. Life restored now leads to life revealed, because you see in verse 11, this man is clinging with gratitude and gladness to the apostles. And as he's clinging to these men, it's as though the crowds now are starting to cling to these men themselves with wonder and amazement. And what we're told is that Peter himself is utterly astonished at their astonishment. Because look at what we're told in verse 12. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? It's actually probably quite likely to a Jewish culture that had a high value on works done according to personal power and piety that Peter expressly is singling out. There's nothing within our own personal power. There's nothing within our own personal piety that has brought this about. Don't marvel at that. Oh, what you should marvel at is the one who actually made this man walk. So you see, the, the wonder becomes this stage for the word about Jesus Christ. And Peter begins his second sermon in the book of Acts. Notice verse 13 saying, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant. And it's almost as though just the mention, the description of the reality that the Father glorified the Son. The Father honored the Son. That in Peter's preaching mind, it becomes immediately apparent that he needs to remind this crowd, you didn't glorify the Son. You didn't honor the Son. Because this volley of confrontation comes notice in verse 13, 14, and 15. He says at the end of verse 13, You delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate. Verse 14, You denied the Holy and Righteous One. Ask for a murderer to be granted to you. Verse 15, You killed the author of life who God has raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. Look what you did. And we need, we need preaching, don't we, in our days like that. That's not scared of second-person pronouns. Look what you did to the Lord of the universe. Look what you did to the king who was crowned with thorns. Look what you did when he hung there on a cross. Because, of course, it's true that the preaching of Jesus Christ is never mere explanation of who Jesus is. It's always exhortation to respond to who Jesus is and what he has done. Which is why, then, really, in the bulk of Peter's sermon, the remainder through the end of chapter 3, it's all about how you respond. How this crowd clinging to them must respond to Jesus Christ. One of the great preachers of the 20th century, I've told you before, was a Welshman named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was once preaching to a gathering of people that early on in the sermon were starting to interact with his preaching in a way to which he was unaccustomed, according to his pattern at Westminster Chapel in London. For these people were breaking out 
after certain sayings and sentences of significance, they would say, Amen. And if you know anything about Lloyd-Jones' ministry, he wasn't so fond of the verbal affirmation in response to his preaching. I'm different, but that's okay. He wasn't. <laughs> and so someone said, Amen, and the story goes that he paused for a minute and kept preaching, and another person said, Amen, and he paused longer and then kept on preaching, and maybe by the third time someone said, Amen. And he stopped his sermon in a way that only the doctor could and looked down and said, My dear friend, the gospel is meant to be applied, not applauded. To which the person responded, Amen. (laughs) And it's true, isn't it, that the gospel is meant to be applied. That's only good news when it becomes good news to your heart. What does it mean for the gospel? To be applied, according to Peter in this text. Well, two things immediately come to mind. It means, number one, looking to Jesus. Notice verse 16. And his name, that being Jesus' name, by faith in Jesus, this man has been made strong, whom you see and know. And faith, that is, through Jesus, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Students, I wonder if you have a a good working idea and definition of of faith. You might have been raised in a home that loved the shorter catechism, so you might easily and quickly be able to define faith as receiving and resting on Jesus Christ alone as he's offered to you in the gospel. That's a good definition of faith. There are many illustrations of faith that we find in Scripture, but none, I think, as lovely as the simple reality that faith is looking to Jesus Christ. Faith doesn't require you to lift a finger in order to do something. Faith doesn't require you to walk a hundred miles in his service before you can come to him. Faith was merely the command of verse 4. As Peter directly looked at this lame man and said, look at us. Faith means looking at him. Peter says it's faith in that name, the Holy One and Righteous One of Israel, looking to him has made this man well. But it's not just about looking to Jesus Christ. The other side of that one coin of how you're supposed to respond to Jesus is leaving your sin. Because you see in verse 17 and 18, Peter says, Brothers, you sinned in ignorance. You need to have a category in your own mind for ignorant, unintentional sins. But sins, nonetheless, they are. Which is why he says, notice verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back at your sins Maybe blotted out. And then as I read the text, you may have noticed what what Peter begins to do in the next few verses is what Peter tends to always do. And the apostles themselves were always doing in their early preaching of Jesus Christ. They were using the Old Testament to tell their hearers how it is that this man Jesus is in fact that long expected and predicted Messiah. And why is repentance turning away from your sins? Why is it so urgent? Well, as he's speaking from the book of Deuteronomy, you'll notice verse 23, speaking about this prophet who is to come after the pattern of Moses, but be the true and greater Moses. Peter says, verse 23, it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet in context, who does not listen to Jesus Christ, shall be destroyed from the people. Why then is the summary statement surprising? Notice verse 26, God having raised up His servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. 
Christ has come to turn you from your sin. Christ has come to, to call you to repent. Turn from your sin for the purpose, according to verse 19, that your sins might be blotted out. Kids, you may have had a time this week where you scribbled something on a piece of paper uh, with a pencil and you know you tried to erase it. And if your erasing skills are anything like mine, even after erasing the word, you know, it still seems to be there on, on the page. It's there maybe faintly, but it's it's still there altogether. Well, the ancient world, when, when they used ink, they didn't use ink with, with uh, acid like we do today, which would mean nothing other than the fact that the, the ink wouldn't bite into the paper in the same way that our ink does today. So if you wanted to erase something in the ancient world, it was actually quite easy. All you do is you take a sponge, you dip it into water, and then you just wipe the papyrus of its ink, and it would be totally gone. And that's what Peter is saying here is true about the sins of anyone who comes to Jesus Christ, looking to him, leaving their sin. What they find is that the sin is blotted out. And here's why that's a glorious good thing. The Bible tells us that we've all been born into sin. That by nature you are a child of wrath. It also tells us, the Bible does, that God is keeping a record in his book of all your sins. Which isn't it a most terrifying thought. You can picture almost in your mind's eye, can't you, this divine pin. From the minute you started breathing, scribbling, sin after sin. Every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed for every single day, month, and year of your life. Now, true it is that there's a day coming when he'll call you to account for those sins. And what will be set next to you is the book on your life. And don't you think that it's going to reach to the heavens in the height of its account and record of your sin? One after another, demanding that you receive his punishment and destruction. And I promise you there's absolutely nothing you can do to wipe away any of those sins. But what Peter's telling us here is that the good news of Jesus Christ is he can wipe away those sins. That God in his love and mercy as it was, he takes this sponge and dips it in the precious promised blood of Jesus Christ and wipes clean. That file and slate that contained all your sins that you might stand spotless and secure before him. Look to Jesus Christ, leave your sin And you'll find it all washed away. Life is revealed, isn't it, in Jesus Christ. What does it mean, though, for this crowd there on that day so long ago? How did they respond to the word that Peter proclaimed? Well, that's life rejected and received now in the first four verses of chapter 4. On Monday of this week, a seminary semester came to an end in one of my classes that I teach every spring is preaching lab. Men training for gospel ministry, they just come and they preach sermons early Monday morning and we just give feedback to the sermons. What's good? What's bad? Because of course they need to know that any ordinary pastor and preacher, he receives constant feedback, good and bad, about his preaching ministry. But I can say with all conviction and certainty that it's got to be true, doesn't it? That even for my own life this year, and certainly it seems like in the near future, the feedback I will get on any sermon I ever preach will not be anything like what Peter gets. Notice verse 1 through 3. They're speaking to the people. Religious leaders and political leaders are now coming into the temple, greatly annoyed the Sadducees were. 
Because verse 2 says they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. If you don't know, the, the Sadducees were a group of religious leaders in that first century Jewish context and, and culture that didn't believe in the resurrection. So we're going to see this even later on in, in the book of Acts, that when Peter or other apostles are preaching the gospel of resurrection, it's really going to greatly annoy them. It's going to make them quite angry. It's clearly getting on in the day. It's too late in their minds to call together the council. So they throw Peter and John into prison. These resurrection-proclaiming rabble-rousers. And what we'll see, Lord willing, next week is what they decide to do with them. But here then is one ordinary response to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Rejecting the preaching of Jesus Christ. But the word of God is never bound by chains and prison cells, is it? For many receive it. Notice verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. A man's life has been restored. Christ, who is the author of life, has been revealed. And some have rejected him. Some have received him. I wonder what you have done with Jesus Christ. At a previous church where I served, we held a monthly gathering for church planters to talk with them and, and teach them various things. And it was pretty common early on that you would get men that would come to these monthly gatherings all, all excited as they should be and zealous as they should be to uh, preach these churches that we trusted would be healthy and faithful representations of what God wants his body to be, Christ's body to be, but also faithful and healthy representations of what it means to preach Jesus Christ. And almost invariably, as we would talk with these men about the church that they wanted to plant, it wasn't too long into that conversation that we might ask a simple question because it seemed like everyone knew it already. What are you going to call your church? And I remember one man vividly who came for many months and eventually joined our church wanting to be a church planter. He said, that first conversation I ever had with him, I want to name my church Solomon's Portico. And, and some of you might think that's just kind of this early 21st century, postmodern, somewhat emergent church zeal to plant a Solomon's Portico. But he knew something about the uniqueness of the name that even many Christians have no idea about Solomon's portico. And so he said, hey, come with us this Lord's Day to Solomon's portico. People would be like, well, where? And you would get to say, well, the place where a lame man walked and leaped and praised God. A place where Jesus Christ was preached. A place that tells us Jesus gives life. So as we close, let me... I hope you see two more things about this kind of life that Jesus gives to his people. Those that receive him. Those that respond by looking to him and leaving their sin. I want you to see first of all that, that life means rejoicing in Jesus Christ. Rejoicing in Jesus Christ. If you made your way through chapter 3 and 4 later today. And just circled. All the times that the word temple is mentioned. It will stand out in Luke's mind the location of this day is very important. And it's not just the location of the temple, it's also the location of the beautiful gate. And that we know that was on the east side of the temple. The east side of the temple was always important for Jewish people because it was in the book of Ezekiel. That the glory of God departed from the east side of the temple. And now it's on the 
east side of the temple that the glory of God in Jesus Christ has come and revealed something of God's Holy One, His anointed Messiah. Because here is a man that in picture and type, this lame man from birth, in picture and type representing every single person that's ever lived, he's outside of the temple, isn't he? He's outside of God's presence. He can't do anything on his own power to get inside. And here comes the preaching of Jesus Christ. And then what happens? He begins to move. Dead bones begin to rise. He now is on the inside. Because by faith in Jesus Christ, he has been made well. And by faith in Jesus Christ, now he's walking and leaping and praising God as the old children's song would sing. I hope if you've come to Jesus Christ, you know what it means to walk and leap and praise God in your heart and in your soul, and certainly if you feel it in your actions, such as the happiness and gladness that overwhelms a heart that's truly come to faith in Jesus Christ that you can't but not, at times, internally or externally, walk and leap and praise God because sins are gone. Salvation is here. Life has arrived. Secondly, life means rest from Jesus Christ. It doesn't just mean rejoicing in Jesus Christ. It means rest from Jesus Christ. You glance back up to verse 20 of chapter 3. And Peter uses this phrase that doesn't show up any other time. If I recall correctly in the New Testament, that times, he says, repent therefore, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That times of refreshing may come from where Jesus is. That times of rest, we might say, come from the Savior. I mean, we've now come to the month of May, haven't we, in the year of our Lord, 2022. Four months have passed in God's kindness and steadfastness. And I would wager that many of you in the room today, in just the last four months, have probably said to a loved one or a friend, I need a break. I need some rest. And you know that the soul that spiritually needs rest from sin gets rest from sin in Jesus Christ. That times of refreshing, that times of rest might come from him, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I alone can give you life. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us the life that's found in Jesus Christ. Help us to rejoice this day, to find rest in you this great day of days where you have called us to lay aside our worldly cares and concerns that we might know that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord of our hearts, that he is the author of life. Help us then to respond as you say we must, that your spirit would lead us to look to him and to leave our sin. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand.